0: The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capitol Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capitol Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, are from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capital We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We are working verse by verse through the Gospel of John. For those of you who are joining us for the first time this morning, and we are in a mini-series, a series within a series. I'm calling it uh, Worship According to Jesus from Uh, John 4, and I'm just going to read this morning verses 19 through 24, verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, must worship in spirit and truth. This is God's holy word. Brief prayer. Heavenly Father, may our hearts be instructed in true worship this morning, and may we always endeavor to live our lives as true worshipers, for your sake and Christ's sake. Amen. We've been laying out the principles that Jesus teaches regarding true worship. And so far, we've seen the principles of the universality of worship, that every single person is created as a worshiper of God. That's why you have a soul. Your soul was placed inside you so that you would be a worshiper. We'll talk more about that momentarily. We've talked about the object of worship. Jesus, over and over and over again, says that we worship the Father. The Father and God alone is to be the object of our worship. Third, we've seen the mediator of worship, that all true worship must flow through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Any worship that does not go through Christ, God will not accept. doesn't matter how how heartfelt, genuine, passionate, if it's not through the blood of Christ, God will not accept that worship. And that's what Jesus is saying, the hour is now here, right? When, when I am going to be crucified. And remember when he was crucified, what happened? The temple veil was torn. Why? Because now you no longer had to, to go through uh, a sacrifice that the priest offered. Now you go through Christ. And we're, and we're worshiping here this morning in Christ. And God can accept our worship if it's through the mediator. And then we saw the supremacy of worship. If you look at the end of verse 23... Jesus says the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, that the Father is seeking worship for Himself. And we saw that the highest end of God is His own glory and His own honor, and so He is saving us in order that we might worship and praise Him. And that's a a revolutionary concept to begin to understand. And then last week, we began looking at the requirements of worship. Jesus is very specific about the requirements of what true worship is to be. And we saw that throughout the Bible, God has very specific requirements for worship. And I want to take us back to uh, a scripture that we didn't look at last week, uh, to Micah chapter 6. And I want you to see this principle of the requirements of worship from Micah chapter 6 verse 6. This is what Micah says. This is really amazing language. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord? So, capital L-O-R-D, meaning the transcendent Lord, Yahweh, uh, being, pure being. With what shall I come before God in worship? That's the, the question that he's asking. And he says, and with what shall I bow myself before God on high? So, the the question is, what type of worship does God accept? And he asks, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves, a year old? And look at verse 7. This verse 7 is remarkable. He says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? I mean, think about, I mean, this is a magnificent sacrifice he's talking about. He's saying, if I were to cut the throat of thousands of rams and sacrifice them on the altar, and then thousands of rivers of oil, think of, think of just the, the copious amount of olives it would take to make that amount of oil he's talking about an extravagant over the top excessive sacrifice he's saying if i were to do this would god accept it and then look at the second part of verse 7 he he escalates it even further he says shall i give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul he's saying what if i were to sacrifice my boy what if I were to, to, to put my kid on the altar? Now, what Micah's getting at here is this mindset that says, I could potentially give a sacrifice to God that would be so extravagant that it would buy God off. That I would bring something just so over the top that God would just be forced to accept That type of sacrifice. That's what Micah's talking about. Bind God off with your worship. I know that God will be pleased when I give this extravagant sacrifice. He'll have to accept it. How's your relationship with God? Well, didn't you hear? Didn't didn't you see what I did at the temple? How I brought over a thousand rams to the temple? Didn't you hear? and the oil that I brought, and that I was willing to sacrifice my son, didn't you hear what I've done? God is pleased with me, let me tell you. Now, what Micah is getting at is this, is that God requires something much simpler and much more profound in our worship. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. The heart. It doesn't matter how ostentatious your outward sacrifice is, if it doesn't flow from the heart, God will not accept that sacrifice. It has to be with our minds, that we are worshiping God with our minds. It has to be that we are worshiping God with our affections, and it has to mean that we are obeying God with our will. It it begins with the heart. And the outward expression of us bowing down before the Lord, of us coming this morning and lifting our hands, all of that must begin first here. And if it doesn't begin here, and if you're just going through the motions externally, it doesn't matter. It has to be from the soul. And this is what Micah says. He says, look at verse 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He's talking about a religion of the heart. To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God is more approving of one one single evangelical act of worship than 10 million pagan sacrifices. Think about that. So, if you look back at John 4, Jesus is saying something very similar to this woman at the well. He's saying, worship must begin and be in the heart. Look at verse 23. He says, but the hour is coming, and it's now here. It's, it, it's, it's upon us. When the true worshipers, notice that contrast. you got a lot of false worship taking place in the world, don't we? But the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. These are the two requirements for worship in spirit and truth. And by spirit, Jesus means our soul. And we know that because look at verse 24. He says, in explanation of this, he says, God is spirit. Therefore, those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. If God is a spirit, if God's a transcendent being, if God uh, is not confined by matter, space, and time, then if we are to worship that God, then we are going to have to worship Him in our souls with our spirits. God created humans as distinct from the animal kingdom. How are we distinct God put a spirit inside of us. Remember with Adam, he breathed in Adam the breath of life, the soul. The reason why God has given you a soul is so that you can relate to God and worship God with your soul. He gave you your soul so you could give your soul back to him in worship. Henry Scougal said, Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. So it must begin with the soul. That's what Jesus says we must worship in the Spirit, and then he says we also must worship in truth. By truth, I think Jesus means two things. One, that we worship God according to how he's revealed himself to be, that we don't worship a God of a figment of our imagination. We don't just say, oh, God's like me. I'm going to worship that type of God. But we worship God as He's revealed. He's revealed Himself in two places. He's revealed Himself in creation. You can go outside, look at the stars. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And He's revealed Himself in His Word. And so you see the character of God as He's revealed Himself, and you worship Him as He really is. That means that we worship a triune God a God that's eternal, a God that never changes, a God that cannot lie, a God that is abundant in mercy and grace and kindness, but who will by no means clear the guilty, right? We worship that God, and then we also worship him. This is, this is the other distinction you need to see by truth in the way that God has revealed that we are to worship him. You can't just go willy-nilly about how we're to worship God. You can't just say, oh, well, I think if I were to uh, do X, then God's going to accept that worship. You have to worship God in the way that he prescribes to be worshiped. And I think today there's massive, absolutely tremendous confusion about this. Because most people have never been taught how to worship God properly. In our country right now, uh, for the first time, I think since our country was inaugurated, less than 50% of Americans are actually going to worship. Did you know this? Less than 50% are actually showing up to a place of worship. In some places like New England and California, it's less than 5% of the population is going to worship. A church, what, you know, whether, whatever type of church it is. Now, think about how the population is being scaled down and who is worshiping. Now, think about, about of that percentage of population, about the confusion in the amount of people who are actually worshiping God in the right way. It drops to a marginal level because there's so much confusion. What, what does God require of us? As believers in the New Covenant, what does He require of us in our worship? I think that there is a famine in the land of true worship. And there are so many false expressions of worship, even by Christians, that are offered up and which are outside the will of God. And we began looking at those last week, and we looked at the first two. The first one is formalism. Formalism, uh, think form, that's the key word, is you're walking through the outward forms of worship. You're just going through the motions, but it's not worshiping with the heart. It's, I've got unconfessed sin, I'm living however I want, and I'm showing up on Sunday, that's formalism. It's I'm not actually a believer. I'm not even born again. I go to church because my granddaddy went to church. That's formalism. Then we also looked at commercialism. Commercialism is when the purpose of the worship service is to gain money, is to recoup money. And this is rampant in uh, Western uh Christendom, it's, it's rampant in Africa now because of the prosperity gospel and the Word of Faith movement, which says that God desires you to be happy, healthy, wealthy. And if you just give a little bit of money to me, I'll make sure that happens. I'll give a prayer to God, and, and you give a little to me, and I'll make sure that you're paid back tenfold. And it's essentially a Ponzi scheme where the pastor is at the top, and he lives a nice healthy, wealthy life, and people are giving money. Anyway, you know this. So that's commercialism. This morning, we are going to begin by looking at radicalism. Radicalism. Radicalism is a departure from God's revealed will regarding the forms of worship. It is a failure to follow God's directions for how he should be worshiped. It's basically saying this. You know what? I kind of feel like setting up an altar right here and calling it God. And we're all going to burn candles and and come and bow down right here. And we're going to worship in the name of Jesus, but that's what we're going to do. It's worshiping however you feel like you should worship. And there's two places in the Bible that this is really seen clearly. Uh, The first one is in Exodus chapter 32, in Exodus 32, the context is, is Moses has gone up on the mountain, and Moses has been gone on Mount Sinai to get the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. They were written on two tablets of stone, and Moses has been up on the mountain for a long time, and the people become restless. Verse 1 of chapter 32 of Exodus says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings. This is Aaron. Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, a golden cow. That's what he made. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, now notice this language this is this is remarkable what they say who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then when Aaron saw this he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, "Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord." And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That phrase, rose up to play, is a euphemism for fornication, for licentiousness, for unrestricted sexual activity. And then the Lord said to Moses on the mountain, he says, go down, notice, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves how they've corrupted themselves verse 8 verse 8 I think is the most important verse in this section God says they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them notice that God had commanded them to worship a certain way they have turned aside quickly from that way and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here's what's fascinating about that statement. Is they're saying this golden calf is a representation of God. This isn't a worship of some other god. This is a worship of Yahweh. They're saying, this calf represents the one true God. And then we're going to make sacrifices to it. And then we're going to worship in this manner that we see fit. And God's saying, look, you've turned from the way. You've, you've worshipped me in a way that is outrageous and wrong and unholy. And that day it goes on, over 3,000 people were struck down dead as a result of this false worship. 3,000 people. Because they failed to worship God in the way that He prescribes. They made an idol to represent Him. So that's the first example. The second example we read earlier is just a few pages over, and that's Leviticus chapter 10, the third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 10. This is right after the tabernacle has been dedicated, and essentially what the priests were supposed to do is the priest carried these censers, and a censer was, I think, a stick on it with, with uh, a tray on the top which, where you could store um, a fire with, with ashes in it, and they were supposed to get the fire and the censers from the bronze altar, that's what God had said. Look, you go to the altar, and you get the fire from the altar, and that's what's supposed to be in your censer. Now, what happens with Nadab and Abihu, if you keep reading, uh, God gives instructions on, uh, about not serving with strong drink. What probably happened is they got drunk. And they said, we're not going to use the fire from the altar. They got fire from some other source. The text doesn't tell us. And it says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Notice this theme of what God commands. You are to worship God in the way that he commands. And fire representing the presence of God. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Now Moses is a prophet, and Moses is speaking the word of God now to Aaron. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, God is saying, look, these priests, these Levites that are going to serve before me, near me, near my presence in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, they have to serve me a certain way, in a way that is honoring to me and glorifying to me, that they set me apart in their hearts as truly holy, and that they revere me. That's what... God is saying. So, is this issue of radicalism confined to the Old Testament? You can turn back to John 4. This issue of radicalism, of worshiping in different ways than the Scripture requires of us, has been going on throughout human history. It didn't just end with the Old Testament people of God, this issue of radical worship was one of the main reasons why the Protestant Reformation happened 500 years ago. October 31st, I know we call it All Hallows Eve or Halloween, it's Reformation Day. That's the day that Luther nailed the theses on the door in in Wittenberg. And I was just reflecting on that fact this week, And the reality is one of the key reasons why the Reformation occurred is because of the issue of radical worship in the Roman Catholic communion. Radical worship. Now, what do you mean? What do you mean radical worship? Well, I read this past week a treatise that Calvin wrote in 1544, and he said, look, he he was writing to the emperor. He said, the the Reformation needed to take place because the worship was radical, and it was radical in three ways. It was radical first in that people were praying to other people other than God. In other words, they were making invocation to saints other than God. And probably the rationale for that is that God's too busy. God's too holy. God's too lofty. And so, therefore, we need to pray to people who are a little lower. We need to pray to Mary. We need to pray to Peter. We need to pray to Paul, and so on and so forth. Remember Martin Luther, before he was converted, was caught in a lightning storm, and who did he pray to, do you remember? Saint Anne. He said, Saint Anne, if you'll save me from this, I'll dedicate my life as a monk. So people were praying and and giving intercession to saints and not God. Second, Calvin said that the worship had become radical and that the saints had become to be venerated, just like God. And and this is why when you go into some Roman Catholic churches, there's what we call icons. An icon is a statue of a saint. And what the Roman Catholic church said is this, is they said, there are some people... That have, that have lived lives that are so meritorious that if you venerate them and honor them, then you can receive some of the grace that they have earned to enter into heaven. And so, people would go all over Europe on, on treks to see what was called relics. And a relic would be, for example, maybe the tunic of Joseph or a tooth of Thomas Or the skull of John the Baptist. I mean, you you just go on and on and on. There were relics in every city, and you go visit the, the relic, you pay homage to it, and you get grace. Third, Calvin said the issue of radicalism in the Roman Catholic communion is the issue of sacraments. Sacraments, or we could call them ordinances. Now, how many ordinances in the New Testament did Jesus give to us? Two. What are they? Baptism. Go therefore in all the earth, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what else? The Lord's Supper. As often as you drink it, right? The Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church added five sacraments to those two. Those five sacraments are. Confirmation. Reconciliation, that would be confession and penance with with a priest. Uh, Holy orders, that's when a priest is ordained. Holy matrimony, marriage. And then fifth is final rites or last unction, this idea that if somebody's dying, that if a priest can come and say prayers for that person, that person's soul will be delivered unto heaven. So those were the five that they added. And, and Calvin said, not only have you added five, but you've distorted the two that the Lord Jesus gave. And here's how you've distorted them. One, you've said that baptism regenerates and saves the individual, So when the baby is baptized, what Calvin said is you're saying that that baby is immediately saved in the waters of baptism and not by faith. And second, he says you've distorted and really destroyed the Lord's Supper. Because what the Roman Catholics were teaching and what they still teach is that when the priest comes and blesses the Eucharist, that he is calling down Christ from heaven to give another sacrifice for the atonement of sin, that that is taking place in the Mass. And Calvin said, you you fail to understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've completely destroyed what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a meal that points us back to the cross and reminds us of the benefits of Christ. But it is not a new atonement given right there. And that's why people were afraid to even drop a crumb of the bread or a drop of the wine because, wow, this is the literal body and blood of Christ that was just given right there in a a sacrifice. So if I drop a crumb on the ground and a mouse eats it, now the mouse is eating the body of Christ. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh once, but made alive in the Spirit. So the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal. It points us to Christ. It is a communion with Christ, but it is not a new sacrifice of Christ. Calvin says this is radical worship. It is a distortion of what Christ has commanded. Is there an issue with strange fire being offered Today, golden calves in worship. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. A church in California that two of my cousins were at, one time they had gold dust. You can see this on YouTube. Gold dust start coming down from the air conditioning vents. And people were saying, oh, God is raining down gold on us. They're in Dallas, where I was before I came here, there was a pastor in town, he and his wife did a sermon series, he and his wife a sermon series, on sex, dating, relationships, preaching it from a bed on the roof of their church. And they were up there for so long they ended up, their eyes getting, ended up getting burned from the glare of the sun. So they had to end the sermon series by God's grace. By God's judgment. (laughs) But nevertheless, they tried to pull it off. Uh, Just this past year, I saw one macho-type preacher violently baptizing people. Did anybody see this? Where people were getting baptized, and he was jumping on them and and basically punching them and pushing them in the baptismal. All of this, it's strange fire. And you you can just go on YouTube and see the different ways that people are distorting the worship that God commanded us to give. Now, you might say, well, Grant, all the examples you gave earlier were from the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Let me give you a verse from the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 28. Hebrews 12, 28. The writer of Hebrews says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Ooh, okay, with reverence and awe. With reverence and awe. For God, he says, is a consuming fire. Friends, we are worshiping this morning a holy God who demands that we worship him with reverence and awe. And yes, he is intimate. Yes, he's our friend. Yes, I love thinking about the intimacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also must remember that we are being ushered up into the throne room of God, where when Isaiah saw that vision, he said, woe is me, for I am a sinful man. We must have that reverence and that awe for God. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29, he said, look, He says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judgment from who? God. That is why many of you are weak and ill. And listen, some have died. Some people in the Corinthian church had literally died because they had taken communion in the wrong way, flippantly, Without taking stock of their lives, without confessing sin, without reverence and awe for God. He says, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, you need to take stock of yourself, you need to take stock of your worship, you need to check your own conscience before God. Judge yourself. That way you will not be judged by God. Friends, worship is serious business. It is serious business. It's not, let me stroll in here with my latte and just sit back and be entertained. It is coming before a holy God and reverencing and honoring him through the mediator the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. We are to be people awakened to a holy God. And we are to stick to the basics. That's why here at Capitol, you know, our worship here is really simple. And that's because we're simply doing what the New Testament tells us to do, and nothing else. We come, we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's Ephesians 5.17. We read scripture out loud. That's 1 Timothy 4. We preach the Word. That's 2 Timothy 4. We pray. We, we pray even for those in authority and, and governing rulers that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. That's 1 Timothy 2. We're just doing what the Bible says and nothing else. We're not doing something crazy, having a prayer labyrinth or somebody up here painting as I preach. We're not doing that. We're just doing what the Bible says, and the reason why is because we want to honor the Lord the way that He told us to do it. So that's radicalism. And lastly, because all we'll have time to do today is the next one is pragmatism. Pragmatism. This one is so important and really defines the really so much of. So called evangelical worship today. Pragmatism is the use of any means in worship to achieve greater numerical results. It's the philosophy that the ends justify the means, that if we can get however many people to make decisions, if we can get however many people to be baptized, if we can get however many people to give money, well, it doesn't really matter how we achieve that result as long as the results are achieved. It essentially says that we will combine instructions for worship with marketing insights, business principles, and use the pragmatic ideas of the world to achieve the desired results that we want. So basically, worship and the church begins to look like a business. And in a business, who's always right? Customer. And so we need to make the worship, we need to make the church as user-friendly to the customer, the seeker, as we can. We need to cater everything to make sure that people feel comfortable coming to the church and that they're in no way offended and that it's something that entertains them and will bring them back the next week because after all, they don't come back. How are they going to hear the gospel? So we just make it nice, entertain people, make people feel good about themselves. We need to do what the seeker wants. Now, we do need to be sensitive about the seeker, but who does Jesus say that the seeker is? The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God's the seeker. It's God who we must be concerned about. I've literally heard stories of pastors going around neighborhoods Knocking on doors and asking lost people what they want to see in the worship service. I'm not joking you. This is how the megachurch movement in America started. This is history. I could list the churches, but that's how their pastors started the church going around and asking unbelievers, hey, what do you want? What do you want in the worship? What do you want to do? What do you like? what do you don't like why 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 did you leave such and such church how do you want to worship god and say hey okay we're going to this is what we got we're going to put all these things together that's what we're going to do and you know what people came in droves cuz you're giving people exactly what they want and stamping christianity on it and saying yeah this is a new way to do church and god's happy with it is he Here's how I've noticed pragmatism has manifested itself three ways. First, it adds elements to worship to make the unbeliever feel more comfortable. So, let's sing songs that aren't actually Christian songs. They're just secular songs. ACDC, whatever. We'll we'll play whatever you want to hear to make you feel comfortable. Uh, It takes themes into the worship service from popular television shows and movies. I literally saw a pastor in Florida last year do a sermon series on Game of Thrones. I'm not joking you. It adds comedy, drama, mimes. Saw One Church motorcycles, people coming out and driving their Harleys on the, uh, the platform. Uh, here's a new thing. Uh, My friend Costi was telling me about this in Arizona. Here's what churches are doing in Arizona. I think it'll be here really soon. But they're putting a lot of TVs in the lobby as people are coming into the auditorium showing the baseball game or the football game that's being played right at the moment. So that way people can enjoy their sports while they're coming to worship God. That's a thing. Second, what pragmatists do is they subtract elements of worship which an unbeliever finds offensive. And that's basically everything that, is told, that we are told to do in the New Testament. That's the public reading of Scripture. We're not going to read a long section of Scripture. Why? Because that's boring. People don't want to read Scripture. Listen to an archaic text. We're not going to sing the hymns of the faith. Definitely not the hymns. Those aren't trendy enough. We need to sing some type of music, probably secular songs, but maybe some songs that just proclaim one short Christian truth, and we sing that truth about 30 times so people can grasp it. And then preaching, I mean, my goodness, what an outdated mode of communication. Can't we come up with something better? we got to have a movie or a skit or something, because preaching, I mean, who wants to listen to preaching these days? So we're going to make, if we do have a sermon, it's got to be about a 20-minute sermonette. In prayer, my goodness, what has happened to public prayer? The actual communion with God, seeking the Lord's strength, the Lord's power, the Lord's blessing, the Lord's answers. The Lord's intervention. What has happened to prayer? Well, unbelievers don't like to pray. So we might say a short prayer, God bless the service, and then that's it. There's no actual prayer, intercessory prayer. And then third, the most damaging part of pragmatism, I think, is the watering down of the message the watering down of the message. Because in the message of the gospel, there are certain parts of it that are offensive, that are offensive. That's why when Paul would go places, they stoned him. That's why they crucified Jesus. Because the gospel doesn't come to you and say, hey, God loves you as you are. You just live a perfect you know, life as you as, are. As, Things as is, and I'm just going to add my stamp of approval on it. God says you have to die to yourself, you have to repent of your sin, and you have to take up your cross and follow me as Lord if you want to see the kingdom of God. That's what type of faith that I demand of you. And that message is offensive. The message of hell, that those who refuse to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell. Do you know who talked about hell the most in the New Testament? Jesus Christ. He warned people, and he pleaded with people to trust him and not to go to hell. We don't want to talk about God's standard of sexuality. My goodness, no, that's taboo, and we're certainly not going to talk about suffering in the Christian life, even though Jesus said, look, you know, the servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, guess who else will persecute you? We're not going to talk about that message. Why? Because the gospel must be repackaged into a commodity that can sell. And if it offends people, it doesn't sell. And so we're going to repackage it the messages we're going to deliver with a cool shtick in a casual manner, and we're simply going to address emotional how-tos such as anger, stress, self-esteem, relationships, marriage, leadership, goal-setting, communication, ad nauseum, just keep going, that sort of stuff. And we might tack a few Bible verses on the end, probably from the message. Uh, here's some direct quotations, and these are quotations from periodicals and newspapers and magazines that promote this. Th- these aren't contrary to this. Th- these are in favor of the pragmatic approach. Quote, there is no fire in brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical witty messages, end quote. Quote, services have an informal feel you won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome, not drive them away. End quote. Quote, the sermons are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation, damnation and hellfire. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It's sophisticated urbane and friendly talk. It breaks all the stereotypes, end quote. I'll give you one more. Do y'all, do y'all like these quotes? I had a whole list of them. Quote, the pastor is preaching a very upbeat message. It's a salvationist message, but the idea is not so much being saved from the fires of hell. Rather, it's being saved from meaningless and aimlessness in this life. It's more of a soft sell, end quote. Now, if you just, in closing here, if you want to turn over to the book of Corinthians, my goodness, I wonder what Paul would do if he showed up in so many of our churches just turn over to the, the first two pages of the book of 1 Corinthians and look what Paul says in chapter 2. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's my message. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So the message is Christ. The message is that you are a sinner, that you are bound to hell, but Christ, in God's love and mercy, gave His life as a ransom for sinners, in your place for your sins, and on the third day he died. That's the message with power. And so Paul says that's what we preach. If you look over at chapter 1, this is so remarkable and just absolutely blows any pragmatism or seeker-sensitive religiosity out of the water. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. He says, for since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. In other words, what we preach with the cross and sin and hell and all of this, the world calls folly. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now look what he says, verse 22. He says, is this what the audience wants? Is this what the people want from the message? No. He says, for Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. What do we do? Do we give them signs of wisdom? No. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It's the message that saves. So, here's the thing about pragmatism, is it gets results, but it gets the results the wrong way, and so then the results are nullified. It's multiplied by the power of zero oh, we had 6,000 people come, multiply it by zero because you didn't get them the right way, God's way. If you didn't get them God's way and they're not regenerated and they haven't believed, it's nothing. Jesus would rather have how many disciples? Twelve. And empower them and equip them and send them out to change the world than 6,000 people. And so would I. I care much more about your maturity and the people that we have here and their growth in Christ than the total overall attendance. Because the point is, are we doing this God's way? And when you do it God's way, you get God's results because it's God who gives the growth. Remember, Paul said, I planted Apollos waters who gave the growth, but God gave the growth. Right after Pentecost, says Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the Lord who gives the growth. The Lord is the one who saves people and who sanctifies us in the image of Christ. And so, if we're going to be blessed by the Lord, then we have to use the Lord's methods, right? I mean, it's just that simple. If we want to see revival, if we want to see an awakening, if we want to see God do a new work in our worship, we have to do worship the Lord's way, in the way that he prescribes. And we're not going to manipulate the results. The results are in whose hands? His. My job is to be faithful, faithful to what he's called me to do. Your job is to be faithful you are to preach the message. You are to evangelize your friends and your family members. You're not to manipulate the results. That's God's job. But God will bless it if you honor him and you do it the way that he's told us to do it. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for telling us how to worship you in spirit and in truth and how relevant and pertinent this is for us as 21st century Christians, and our desire, Lord, is to worship you in the way that you've told us to worship you, and to worship you with all of our hearts, and to worship you in the truth, and to worship you in the simple reading of your word and singing of spiritual songs and hymns, and to worship you in the preaching of the word, the preaching of the cross, because that message is the only message that saves. It's the only message that has power. And so, Lord, may we never lose the gospel. May we never lose the cross and the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.